That incense I... Jo- Joe, you in there? What, what is this? Incense I smell? Oh, hey, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, I'm just uh, I'm getting started on a, on a new uh, project here. Um, I've decided to start a cult. What? Yeah, yeah. I've, I think that I've really found something worthy of my devotion, and I've decided to start a cult. You doing like a tax scam, like a L. Ron Hubbard thing? No, no, no. This is this is a legitimate belief in higher power, my friend. I really feel it in my bones. I do. So I can't help but notice that life-size cutout of Jonathan Frakes and two, four, six, six. Jesus, six pictures of Jonathan Frakes. What? What is going on here, man? Yeah. So have you watched uh, Part Tuition yet? Yeah. I mean, I think that's evidence enough, right? Jonathan Frakes took an episode featuring Neelix and Tom Paris fighting over a space elf with a space lizard Muppet baby and managed to turn that into 44 minutes of washable television. That is divine power. That is evidence of a god. And that god is Jonathan Frakes, Peter. I don't know if this is a good idea, Joe. These cults are kind of touchy. It was an episode with a giant space lizard alien and a Muppet lizard baby. Yeah, yeah, look, look. Uh, Look, I'm, I'm trying to come up with holes to punch in this plan of yours, but... He made it watchable, Peter. He made it watchable for 44 minutes. He got good acting out of Garrett Wang. That, that's the power of a god. I can't argue with you. Oh, hey, you know what? If you want to join up, I think uh, I've got a robe right over there for you. Uh, well, you know, I got some... Fr- How did you know this is my... How did you know to get the robe in this size? The Frakes knows all, Peter. Join me. Everybody, welcome to Vidur, please. A hateful voyage for the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. I'm Peter. Do you like do you like the use of the in track drop in, Peter? This is a garage sale of an episode, isn't it? <laughs> We're doing all sorts of stuff here. I've uh, I'm, 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 start- I'm recording in the back of a pickup truck, and I'm wearing uh, denim overalls, and I've got a piece of straw hanging out of my mouth. We're just hillbilly podcasters now. <laughs> I'm trying to find new ways to uh, to use the tools at our disposal, Peter. I'm I'm doing my best. We'll we'll see what works and what doesn't. It's part of the experimentation, my friend. What's new over there, man? Well, you know, I I was going into this one, uh, feeling the deepest dread, and I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about my process in watching this episode because I think it's illustrative of where we stand as we try and endure season two of Voyager after last week's journey into the darkness of the human soul that was twisted. uh, I was not hopeful on this episode and it just so happened that I had the coincidence of going up to Millersburg, Ohio and Holmes County, which you may know since you're also a lifetime Ohio resident is the middle of Amish country. 
and uh, visiting my wife's best friend, Jess, who's a huge fan of ours. Uh, one of our primary promoters and otherwise big uh, pusher of our content. So shout out to Jess. And, and so we, we did, did, endeavored to watch the episode with her, Stevie, myself, and Jess. We all watched it together. Uh, this is I, how you reward our fans as you subject them to Voyager? I, I show up at their house and make them watch it, Peter. That's what I do. I, I, I invite myself in, put it on, sit them down and say, now you have to take a look with me. Look into this. In an ominous first uh, first sign, it was the single episode of Voyager that Jess had never watched. It was on her Netflix. You know, yeah, on Netflix you can see like where you've left off on different episodes or what you've watched. Yeah. This was the single episode of Voyager she had never seen. And it's just like she attributed to like it's just that that image that you put up on the Facebook page. Like she she saw that. And on some deep level, she's ever since like this is this can't be good. It's a this powerful image, be. man. Uh, even having seen the episode, like I still can't shake. It puts a zap on you. It does. And so we watched it together and we were all kinds of ready to talk the maddest shit possible to try and endure what we, we, what we thought for sure was going to be garbage from beginning to end. Okay, so we're just, we're just starting this out. <laughs> I love how I really do love how it's the only episode you haven't watched. Yeah, like, so to clarify, watch to the end, blank. Watch to the end. <laughs> Look at Paris's face in the little in the little icon. Even he's kind of like, ah. There, there's two know. people who wanted to skip work today. Let's peel the curtain back here for a second. We did uh, a skit on this one, and you know when you asked me at first when we you know queued this up, what did I think of the episode? I. You know, I said the exact same thing that the skit was about was I think that I can't give an honest opinion of this because I knew that Jonathan Frakes had directed it. And I, I can't tell if what I saw stood up on its own merit or if it's just a bias that, you know, Commander Riker was uh, in the director's chair on this one for me. I deeply respect that impulse because I had a similar feeling. So we, we watched it and at first we were riffing hard on it and then it sort of captured our attention enough that we stopped talking and we're just watching it. And we came away saying, oh, that was that was pretty good. That was I liked that. And on the drive home, it had dawned on me that maybe it was really just the tyranny of low expectations combined with my love of the Frakes that maybe influenced my thoughts. So I actually made a point of watching it a second time. You're a masochist. <laughs> I'm dedicated to my craft, Peter. I give everything for this podcast, Peter. I give it out. I give you everything. And uh, you're not going to be a young man forever, Joe. Uh, (laughs) I would recommend you to not piss away your your precious 30s rewatching Voyager episodes any more than you absolutely have to. We have we have embarked on the wrong hobby then. (laughs) Um, uh, But after watching it a second time, I was like, okay, this wasn't this wasn't good, but it wasn't terrible. (laughs) This wasn't good, but this wasn't Voyager. (laughs) This was this well. This wasn't bad Voyager. No, it, it was, was not bad Voyager. Well, let's go ahead and jump into it. I, I I will complete by saying one thought before we jump into it, and that is, it feel like this felt comfortably within that season one acceptable Voyager. I'll agree. That's with that. what it felt. All but right. here we are, season two, episode seven. Why does Voyager have to have these complicated pain in the ass titles? You know, they gotta come up with clever ways to title hundreds and hundreds of episodes of 
network TV. Now, so not all of them are going to be winners. This is part, 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 part tuition, part tuition, which uh, means the act of birth in Latin. Anyways, so episode opens up to uh, Kess sitting at the helm of a shuttlecraft, and uh, she's all stressed out next to hers, Paris, and he doesn't seem to give a shit. Well, you know, this is definitely like hot, sweaty. You know, these people are. Tom's filming something here. He's filming a special time with him and Kess. You know what I mean? He's he's making some moves. Is he, though? Because, you know, the plot of this episode will turn into that while he does develop feelings for Kess, that he's actively trying to avoid them. And this is kind of a situation that happens to him, not one that he goes out of his way to create. Yeah, that's what he tells uh, Harry Kim. What's but... really going on here, though, is we're in a holodeck simulation. And for whatever reason, the one credible medic on the ship that is not a hologram and her half-ass understudy, which was uh, Paris, who was supposed to be the original non-hologram medic, uh, they're just further cross-pollinating their skills. So they will both be shuttlecraft pilots, and they will both be medics, and Voyager will continue to put all of its eggs in one basket. You've got hundreds of people. Not hundreds. How, how many people? A hundred and some? hundred hundred. God, I had this written down. I would say 120 to 140, somewhere in that range. you got plenty of people, man. Spread these essential skills out. Quit, uh, quit double dipping people, multiple hats on them. Uh, Especially because the shuttles, as we have established and will further establish in this episode, are fucking death traps. So this is a this is a legit, terribly dangerous profession to be embarking on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big takeaway from this scene is, uh, you know, the the shuttle rocks. Kess ends up in uh, Paris's lap. The line of the show, I think, comes out pretty early here, and that's a. Uh, Clogging someone's plasma injectors is a dirty trick. I wrote that down too. <laughs> That's like space sailor language for like, yeah, you gave me uh, syphilis and now my urethral. Well, that's why I've got the porno vibe where he's like, dirty tricks are my job as your instructor. You know, like it's, they're getting this real intimate vibe in here. And I know Tom claims that he wasn't intended, but. He seems to be enjoying his sweaty close encounter with a two year old. A lot, yeah, a lot. He's enjoying it a lot. Well, they wrap up. They uh, they head out of the holodeck, you know, with a lot of camaraderie. And of course, there's fucking Neelix lurking behind uh, the archway of the holodeck, peering on like a stalker. This episode, and we've talked about Neelix's abusive relationship at length at this point. This episode exists solely for two reasons. One is to give Paris some screen time because producers thought that he didn't get enough in season one. And two is to finally lay this goddamn Neelix Paris Kess love triangle horseshit tin end. So I'm not happy to see more of the green eyed Neelix uh, return, but knowing that it's going to be the last one gave me hope. I, I liked the clever camera shot that they used for the reveal that he was kind of lurking near the, the entrance of the holodeck because it pans over as Kess and Tom leave and then pans back and it shows that he was standing off to the, to the other to the other side. I'm not a cinematography professional and, you know, I've only really started paying attention to shot presentation and stuff like that since we started doing this podcast. But I will say that there is a very standard way that star trek is presented to viewers very static 
fixed shots of traditional angles of scenes. Frakes, from what I've seen so far, consistently breaks away from that Star Trek tradition for production. And uh, I would say always does very interesting camera work. So great call out on that. I absolutely agree with your assessment and on both ends. Uh, all The house guys that they have that direct a lot of these episodes shoot real flat angles. Like you said, real same traditional kinds of sh- uh, shot, reverse shot, whatever. And Frakes always stands out when he's doing something because he does like inventive camera work, which it's a sh- it's a shame no one else has really learned from his example. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that the traditional Star Trek shots are bad, though. I recognize them for what they are, and I think that they work well for this season. It keeps the attention on the actors. It keeps the attention on the plot, and it also usually provides a pretty good chance to check out props. You know, they're boring, but I think they serve the purpose well. And obviously, TV's advanced as a whole past the the director-type style that we've seen from TNG era stuff, but um, for what it is, I appreciate it. And it's funny because when you watch uh, the Orville, right, they mm-hmm. use all of that stuff. And I think that's kind of what endears Orville to me again, is that, that non-tangible trekness in its DNA. And you know, the fact that they've got a lot of those guys producing and directing on that show mm-hmm. is why. Sure. So it makes sense. Uh, we, we get a, I guess a, quick scene with uh, Janeway and Chakotay talking about how they're running out of food. Uh, they're at, a, at 30% of food reserves and Chakotay has found a planet that potentially should have life based on the chemical readings coming from it, but it's a little out of their way. And on, <laughs> on top of it, it's got a, it's got some weird shit going on in the atmosphere that they can't actually confirm. It has plant plant life. I got a real good laugh out of the scene. Because by out of the way, he means 24 hours, like one whole day. Like that is even a drop in the bucket of the amount of fucking around that Voyager has done up to this point, going off course and straying from the mission of getting home. I appreciate the episode, like calling attention to that, you know, they're cognizant of this stuff. But everything we've seen in the eight months of uh, Voyager's voyage home at this point, uh, who who gives a shit for them to make it seem like one day is a big deal is a, is a good laugh. But, and again, I don't know if this is a part of Jonathan Frakes' impact on the episode. I don't know if it's because Michael Piller, who's one of the producers, did a rewrite on this episode. But they start, they're really starting to touch on certain elements, which we have, again, spoken on at length. You know, transport, I'm sorry, uh, replicator rations versus food stocks, the criticalness of, uh, you know, limited supplies, that kind of stuff. And this episode will go on to touch on not only their fresh food supplies running low, but further reinforce that in the post-scarcity society uh, of the 24th century, that here on Voyager, you know, we've returned to the old ways. There is commodity trade. There is limited good. Replicator materials are being rationed out, and you can have good comfort foods, or you can have uh, physical items. And if you're going to, you know, blow your... uh, replicator uh savings on like carrie kim did you know a clarinet or uh paris did last episode or two episodes ago on that now it was twisted that locket that gold locket then you get stuck eating cat food it's uh (laughs) i i love that you just brought that up because of course we're we're going next into the uh uh harry kim tom paris scene in, in harry's quarters 
uh, something I wish I had looked up. Does Garrett Wang actually play the clarinet? I have in my notes, like, you know, he can't normally he can't act for shit. Is that what like locked in his role as Harry Kim? They were just like the, uh, you know, unnamed ops person. Uh, all we've got on paper about them is that they remember coming out of the womb and that they can play the clarinet. So uh, I don't care who it is, guy or girl, white dude, black guy, Asian, whatever, just needs to have clarinet skills. And if you can play the clarinet and fit into this jumpsuit, you got the job. I don't know if he can, but they certainly the way they shot in close him playing it, it certainly looked like he can. I think he can. And I have to wonder if this is the spirit of Riker bleeding through in uh, this Frakes episode. Oh, yeah. This, getting, that, getting that sweet saxophone music right in there. And speaking of Garrett Wang's inability. Sax. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. I just I associate sexiness with Riker. Team. You're going to call me out on not knowing that Paris was the head of the United Federation of Planets. I'm going to point out that you don't know what instrument uh, Riker plays and you're over there founding this this fucking cult. You're a sham, okay. sir. Okay, hold on. All right, let's play this game, bruh. What is the song that Troy asks Will Riker to play on the in the episode where he finds his transporter double that he is terrible at playing and tries to avoid playing? What is it? Because I know it. That would be... He's doing his concert. <clears throat> that would be Slam by Onyx. <laughs> it's Nightbird, motherfucker. Look at what I know about Will Riker. Because I'm the head of his cult. Mm-hmm. You have carefully prepared facts that you're pulling out uh, at your own discretion, but when encountering questions in the wild, you're failing. I'm not going to let you slide on this. You know what I I will let slide, though? Yeah, all of non sequitur, because Garrett Wang, apparently, a part of of Jonathan Frake's magical divine ability is to get him to act. Not him to act, but him to act with Paris in a role of friendship and camaraderie that should have been the backbone of non sequitur and they didn't get anywhere near it. And in this, what two minutes stint, I think they do a great job of fleshing out the friendship we've got going on here. They fucking do. It's, it's amazing how much better their interaction is and how much more I can be like, yeah, these guys are bros or there's a broness that's developing here. And like Garrett Wagg in particular, who was so fucking bad in his spotlight episode where he got to be the Mary Sue all action hero in the two minutes that he has in this scene is good. Something that he's throwing down. He's throwing some advice down there for Tom. He's throwing, he's put out some harsh judgments. He's being trolly with his clarinet. I mean, it's, it, it made me like him. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, what did kind of stick out weird though, is that uh, Kim calls Tom Paris, just Paris, which seems weirdly rock, locker room uh, setting for, for, I don't know. If they're friends, I don't see why he wouldn't just be calling them Tom, but that's me being petty. Anyways, so Paris is in there because uh, it's finally sunk in that he's got a crush on Kess. And again, if we're going to, you know, directly compare this to non sequitur, not only are we seeing a great friendship exchange here, but we're also seeing uh, the man that Tom Paris wants to be versus the Tom Paris that would be had he never gone off onto Voyager. And Tom says, you know, hey, look, I got feelings for Kess. I don't want to have feelings for Kess. She's taken and uh, I don't want to be, you know, Sancho. I don't want to be the other guy who's, you know, home wrecking. Not that Kess and Neelix have a home. They live in separate fucking apartments. But, uh, you know, here's this conundrum I have on my hands. And uh, Kim gives him some uh, 
what was Kim's advice exactly? Just leave her alone? Really just says, like, dude, you do this to yourself. Like, you, you like it. You like being in these in these kinds of positions. You need to just back off. And it, it isn't a lot so much of advice so much as, as just, you know, quit it. Just, just, just fucking don't dude. Um, but it's, it, it's not so much the advice or anything that's like direction that's given in the scene. It's just good buddy, buddy time. Like it makes you under see that these guys are friends in a way that you're like, oh, I buy that now I'm buying it. Especially when he starts, uh, Kim starts trolling him with what he decides to play on the clarinet. That's, that's good. I like that. That's good. Put a circle that put check mark next to it. Good. Done. My biggest problem with this scene, you know, the him calling him by the name Paris was a little awkward, but it is nothing. And I mean, nothing compared to the creep out factor. I got <laughs> watching him playing this clarinet and looking Paris directly in the eye while blown on this thing. <laughs> Did you catch See, that I at all too? This. I saw it, but I saw it as a uh, gotcha, bitch. You wanted something, you know, sorrowful, and I'm gonna play a happy fucking tune. Maybe Brr, I don't you know, know I, enough people who play instruments that you know, looking people in the eye as you play, in, especially the clarinet of all instruments. Like, I don't know, just creep me out. I I wanted nothing to do with that part. I, if I was Paris, <laughs> I might have shoved him out of the way and just got the hell out of there. But like, look, dude, before I know what you're gonna start talking about your creepy womb adventures and God knows whatever else. I know. Oh, come on. Come on, Tom's got no no ground to stand on there. He freaking snuck up on him in bed, touched That's on him, I'm and then brought him to like, his jack-off den. Come on. Tom, who broke into Kim's apartment and, like, creeped up on him and touched him and, and took him to see his flashlights. All that being said and done, I think even, you know, then, Kim's eye contact, way more creepy. Well, the next scene is a, you know, it's a quick, awkward Neelix Kess dinner. And it's just setting the stage for Neelix's obvious continued discomfort with what's going on with with Tom and Kess's closeness. We get data on the planet that they're headed to. Two things. One, it's got an atmosphere that's going to be very irritating to human skin. So the doctor calls up and says by the way i spy on everyone and i heard your conversation so i'm totally making like an ointment so that whoever goes down there won't you know come down with a terrible case of skin rash uh, and janeway's and, got beef with that they they have a whole <laughs> little thing about it she's like well how often do you you know listen in on this and he's like well look you know ems protocol is uh when i am active it's usually an emergency or it should be an emergency and i have access to all the key you know, communication backbones of the ship. So if there's a problem, I know where to go and, you know, help fix shit. And she gets all bent out of shape about it. And it's like, look, you you know, you're terrible at communicating with the crew, especially the guy who's supposed to be your doctor. But chill out. Yeah, it's unnecessarily bitchy, but maybe it's an another window into the fact that Janeway has actually shown some consistent discomfort with the doctor being a person. Hmm. And so it's why he's not being consulted in the first place, which is what leads to the conversation and kind of just treats him like a toaster, which is ultimately what he was. She was thinking he was until it was Cass who really like talked her into thinking that he's not a toaster. Uh, well, so I, 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 I call it continuity, uh, but it is pretty, pretty, pretty bitchy ever. I agree. It's continuity as well, but it just seemed uh, awkward for her to take. You know, again, when they're in the danger zone of the Delta Quadrant, I would think the more communication of the ship, the better. Regardless, I think it's cool that, you know, again, they continue to flesh out Federation technologies and operating protocols and stuff like that. 
Well, one consistent Federation technology and protocol is that they get to the planet, and of course, because there's electromagnetic interference, the transporters don't work, and communication will be spotty, which is like the plot of, I want to say, 68.2% of all episodes of Star Trek. You're right, but I think we can assume, you know, we talked about this last season that when you're watching Star Trek, there is an assumption that there's a lot of stuff you don't see and that's the boring things that aren't worthy of an episode and that, you know, if we're to look in the life of these people on a starship that it's going to be the time things aren't running smoothly that <laughs> shouldn't oh, no, no. be. I, I get that, but all I'm saying is a little bit more creativity on the part of the writers of explaining why the magic MacGuffin technology isn't going to help them this time would be appreciated now and then. Uh, I guess that's a Here, little much to ask. Here's but... what I want. Instead of it always being our amazing, you know, if the Federation is to be defined by one quality, well, several qualities, enlightenment, all that other stuff, but, you know, superior technology. Instead of your superior technology never being able to, to, to cut it, you've got this starship that was not equipped to go out and do what it's doing currently. And that's, you know, long range deep space exploration didn't have the right surplus and supplies. Instead of it always being, hey, our ship running at peak can't tackle this stuff. Ah, uh, fuck. You know, we're still having sensor issues. There's not enough materials to go around. We've been attacked several times, like Voyager's limping along. We're having problems and normally we'd be able to bang this shit out. But unfortunately, you know, shit's on the fritz. No, I, I, I completely agree. That would be a more compelling way to approach it than the for for plot device reasons, our normal things don't work. Totally 100% agree that would be an in-character, in-universe, for this show-specific explanation that would have worked better. But we got what we got, and speaking of what we got, we get, and I'm going to call it probably the best food fight-related scene in all of Berman Trek history. Prior to this scene, we had never had a food fight where you had wet food hitting a uniform because these uniforms I'm sure cost an arm and a leg to clean. So up to this point, anytime anybody's ever thrown food at someone else, it's always been dry. And when uh, we get to the point where Neelix finally, his jealousy boils over and he throws a plate of spaghetti onto uh, Paris and then Paris reciprocates. That is the first time in Star Trek history that uh, you ever have something wet staining a uniform. And then they start like trading like blows and they like gr get into a, like a grapple and roll across a table in front of a bunch of extras and are just really hammered away at each other. And Neelix says, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> like, he Which escalates it pretty quickly there. And, like Tom's like, you know, cracking wise, like your your hair pasta would have done it the trick anyway. But like yeah, Neelix escalates to space cat murder. It's a, like, it's a real, real cat fight, man. They're like pulling hair and scratching, and it's a little cat ball. Like, it should have been two girls fighting on floor. So what happens here is uh, Kim and, and Paris show up. This is where we get the screen grab. Uh, yeah. The terrible, awkward smile, because they go in. They see Kess sitting at a table alone. Kim's like, just don't even sit by her. Don't even acknowledge her presence. You need to, like, check out of this situation. And then Kim gets called off to the bridge. So it's Paris sitting at a table alone. Kess sitting at a table alone. Kess walks out without even talking, and then... Neelix comes over, you know, you guys think you can get one over on me. And, and that's when he shoves the plate of spaghetti on him. Both of those two then get called to Janeway's ready room. And they're 
kind of they both snap out of this fight and they're like, oh, shit, mommy's going to find out we've been bad. (laughs) We're both covered in fucking spaghetti here, which I would think that the, you know, Federation Advanced Technologies would have built Scotchgard, like some sort of 3M anti-stain product into the, the uniforms, but they did not. So they both end up in front of Janeway covered in spaghetti. And it was this scene specifically that made me go back and re- reevaluate why are Kess and Neelix not in Starfleet uniforms? By all means, um, if you want to explore that thought, because I have a lot of th- that I want to say about the Janeway scene, but that's a worthy that's a worthy topic. I I can't explain that really. Again, you, you picked up all these fucking Maquis terrorists, specific Federation criminals. I'm sure some of them used to be Federation cutouts, Torres. Chakotay. I'm sure there's a couple other ones knocking around in there. Uh, you know, you've got Tom Paris, who was court-martialed. All these guys are plopped back in uh, in uniforms. But... In officer positions, too. Like, not just in uniform, but like legit line officers, too. And they'll go through, and we'll discuss in this episode, uh, you know, Neelix says several times, like, I might not like you, Paris, but if you make an order, I will obey it. Like, Neelix is a functioning member of the crew. Neelix is beholden to the Starfleet power structure. Uh, why does he keep getting in these ugly discount African King costumes instead of the, you know, and the same for Cassette? I don't know. It makes no sense to me, aside from they wanted some visual, uh, you know, variety. Of course. It's the same reason, you, you know, know, how Marina Sirtis, well, I'm sure it was different for... Uh, there were two very other compelling reasons why Marina Sirtis was not wearing a Starfleet <laughs> uniform that I think we very both are thinking reasons. of. And it's the same Fantastic reason why... Fantastic reasons. Same reason why 7 and 9 doesn't end up in a jumpsuit later on. Too. Uh, yeah. So Absolutely. I, out of character, it makes great sense in character... It's stupid. But anyways, so, uh, yeah, you got Janeway. You got these two guys standing in front of her. She had called them both into the ready room because uh, and since they can't use the transporters and they don't want to just, you know, bring the entire ship down into the atmosphere, which, spoiler alert, they fucking do anyways. Uh, she decides she wants to put two guys in a shuttle for what is now the third shuttle craft episode for the second season and what will become our fifth shuttlecraft accident episode in total because i'm keeping count uh so uh i want to say for this this i love this scene this is my favorite scene in the whole episode a because they do once again we get a freak shot he shoots uh half the scene high from like above neelix and tom paris's shoulders and you get this great like tracking shot of of Janeway's just contempt for whatever they were fighting over (laughs) she has this perfect disappointed mom slash angry supervisor look sipping on her coffee just you know she's like she one point says am I detecting that there's a a personal problem between the two of you clearly she knows there is she's trolling him yeah he like she she sees it when they come in and like asks why they're covered in spaghetti and Tom kind of says it's gonna be too much to talk about. The whole thing is shot in a, a in an interesting way visually, and then B it's just sparsely done with the dialogue with Janeway in a way of like I don't I just no no I've got a million problems on this fucking ship. I don't know why you two have fucking spaghetti on each other, but you're going to get this fucking job done and you're going to figure it out. Now go, go get the fuck out of here. 
All right, so she's briefing these guys. It is impossible for her not to know that there is some relationship jealousy drama going on because you got Neelix directly going to Chakotay with this shit. Like he has talked to everybody on this ship about his jealousy issues so far. For her not to be aware is unfathomable. And set aside the cheeky funness and all that other stuff, you know, it comes along with the Frakes episode. And let's let's hold this to the the standard of a ship lost in space with limited resources and all that jazz. You're about to put two people in a shuttlecraft, which has a terrible track record as far as uh, this Voyager operation has gone. A life-threatening situation of a shuttlecraft with limited communication going through God knows what to land on a planet that you don't know what's down there. Why risk the crew? Why risk the ship? Why risk everything with such an obvious bad pairing? Like, yeah, okay, this might be a chance for these guys to get past whatever shit they're working through. On a light duty, if 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 a cargo bay needs the, you know, the deck mopped, sure, that's when you put people who you know there's going to be some sort of a fight or whatever. Not mission critical stuff where their lives are literally on the line. Like it's such bad leadership and management on Janeway's uh, side. It's it's amazing. I'm gonna say that uh, it's not what I would call certain that Janeway would know about any of the relationship drama. Uh, it's not like Chakotay's like gonna gossip about it, like every detail of everyone's personal lives to him. Let let alone that she would know that it's Tom Paris that is the object of of uh, Neelix's jealousy. Isn't that so Chakotay's you know, like job though? Is to like monitor cruise shit and let. let yeah, her but know. we just established that Neelix is kind of being treated as this other. He never brings up in Twisted that it's Tom Paris that he's worried about. This is all. Probably new information. So I think you're being a little harsh on Janeway here. There's no reason for her to know before this point that those two got beef or that or that Neelix even has jealousy problems with anybody. Bullshit, man. They were there together in the, uh, the Kess's hologram birthday party. Like everybody has seen the, the obvious jealousy on eh, whatever. Anyways. So she tells them you guys are going down to the surface and uh, to pull their heads out of their asses and, and fix this stuff. So. Uh, the next scene is <laughs> is a, a bad luck committee composed of Neelix and Paris in a death trap shuttle. You're skipping an awesome scene, Peter, where Kess finds out that Neelix and Paris fought over her. Mm-hmm. And so she rampages into the doctor's office, obviously pissed off about it. And then we find out that even in the Delta Quadrant, even in the 24th century, when a woman says she's fine, she is not fine. Saying it's fine. Fine doesn't mean fine. The scale goes great, good, okay, not okay, I hate you, fine. And I died laughing. <laughs> she comes in, she's like, I'm fine. And the doctor's like, really? He's like, nah, I'm fine. Like, oh, this is great. This is great. There's certain things that don't change. This is one of them. You can be a Mayfly space all 400 years in the future. If your woman says she's fine, she's not fucking fine. Run for your fucking life. This is also a scene where you see that the doctor is aware that Paris has, uh, you know, this love triangle going on. So, you now have the doctor with a better emotional IQ than Janeway. But he's also like a semi like omniscient into everyone's health stuff. Like he's mentioned, it's like every time he noticed he had these physiological reactions because that's what he's programmed to do. This is not something normal. Let's split the difference. Uh, Unlike Janeway, he is not a fucking moron. (laughs) 
who so hard. intentionally sabotages uh, their only way of getting home. And let's just acknowledge the fact that Janeway's got some learning difficulties uh, from time okay. to time. And this is one of those manifestations. They're on the death trap. Uh, standout line here is uh, Neelix actually saying the words technobabble as uh, Paris is giving a flight recorder status, even though they have lost contact with Voyager. There's some ongoing hostilities. They make the agreement we're going to leave our beef on the ship. And then, lo and behold, what could possibly happen to a Voyager shuttlecraft that has been cut off from communication with Voyager? You got dun-dun-dun ready to go? Oh, you know it. Hit it, Joe. The shuttle crashes. I know. And, you know, they have that that sort of, you know what's going to happen, but they start trying to, like, build the danger up a little bit. You know, like, we've got problems, we've got this, like, the fucking flux capacitor is loose, and all of a sudden, you know, we gotta look out, oh no, we're gonna crash, it's gonna be terrible, it's this, that false sense of danger, you know, is never real. I fucking hate that, like, just, just, the, the lack of creativity is not from this episode, though, it's just Star Trek in general. How many times have we seen that? I mean, I would say at this point, the shuttlecraft crashing is just the Cardassian hallway of Voyager moving the plot along. It is it is a connective tissue between two scenes that gets you from point A to point B and point B repeatedly needs to be people stranded on the surface in peril. And you know what? That's fine. Whatever. Let's make a prediction. Let's make a prediction. How many shuttlecraft right. accidents are we going to suffer yeah. in total for, for yeah. Voyager? Or we gonna go Over seven seasons. Yeah. How many do you think we're going to see total from... Given in, given that we've already seen five, like five, you say three in this season, three in the season, five total shuttlecraft accidents, three in this season. How many more shuttlecraft accidents between now and the end of season seven will we see? My guess is going to be twenty total, so at least fifteen more. I was going to go with twenty as well. Uh, I okay, so you're going to say we're going to set the the mark at twenty. Let me write this down. 20 prediction. I will say that there will be less. That That's how I'm going to calibrate this. But I don't think it'll be, I think it'll be a little bit, a little shy of 20 in total. Okay. Okay. I think those are fair guesses. Because, you know, you think about the frequency that they're going to be doing it at. Oh, God, that could be too little, though. You know, let's. Because they're going to bring out the Delta Flyer and that's going to become a big set piece, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. And that's going to probably limit how many you're going to lose in the later seasons. Oh, are we saying that these have to be full on destroyed shuttle accidents or merely, hey, the thing's fucked up and it can't get back on the ground without serious work? I'm going to say just like what we're saying, like danger zone, danger room situations. So you want to go disasters. Yeah, like the shuttle is a dangerous thing. It doesn't. I think we can use our our judgment to decide what qualifies. Obviously, any situation where the shuttle is destroyed or seriously like seriously damaged, catastrophic. Is yeah, I, I would say catastrophic shuttle accidents, not you know, little not necessarily movies. total destruction, but at least something close or or very nearly yep. so. I will go a little under twenty, but I, twenty was going to be my original thought on that as well. Yeah, I think so, tw- I'm feeling good about that. Yeah. This is a good crash landing as far as uh, these uh, shuttlecraft. You don't obviously get to see the thing, you know, skipping along the surface because that's special effects money. But whereas normally we just catch people laying on the floor, rubbing their head like this shuttlecraft is fucked. Like nose is in the ground. They took the uh, the window, the front, you know, windshield basically 
and they filled dirt up on the side. So it looks like this thing's like dug into the ground, like a shovel at an awkward angle. And, uh, Paris and uh, Neelix, and I want to point out there was this conversation specifically where Neelix says, you know, uh, you can shove your opinions up your ass, but I will listen to your orders and you are the mission commander and I am following orders, which is all put his ass in a uniform, whatever. Uh, so they start scratching at themselves like a couple of uh, Chappelle show uh, quality crackheads. <laughs> Cause he's like scratching at his jaw and on the back of his head and like their elbows. It's like Joe Rogan. I smoke rock. Hey, you got it. You got any of those quality Voyager episodes? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Paris is like, look, man, we got to find food. And then Neelix is like, well, you know, you Starfleet types, you're, you're too good for so much of your food. And he's like, well, yeah, your food's terrible. And he's like, uh, he's like, uh, Paris, I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> this will not be the first time that I've had a horse penis in my mouth. <laughs> yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah, that, that that works in that, you know, Neelix doesn't turn his nose up. Anything. That, Neelix eats like a crackhead. That's, that works. <laughs> That's work. canon in my head now. <laughs> well, I mean, they get a lot of good dialogue throughout the rest of their time on the, uh, on the planet here of, of, uh, Tom throwing a little bit of dirt on, on Neelix and Neelix being like, yeah, yeah. Guess what? I used to, I used to live in filth. I used to live in garbage. That, that was my life. You, hey, you want to fight about it? He's like Irish all of a sudden. He's like, yeah, let's do that. Let's go, bro. Let's do it. I'll scratch your eyes out. So taking a step back here, as sick as I am of Neelix and Paris and their love triangle, there is, I think some pretty good, uh, actor, actor chemistry between these two guys and the dialogue moves fluidly. It moves well. Uh, I would say it, it's very plausible and that I buy into this antagonism, this mutual antagonism. It's certainly Neelix leading the charge on this thing um, with uh, Tom playing a little bit more defensively. But uh, for the next couple scenes, it's going to be these two guys exclusively and it works well. They make the decision that uh, the shuttlecraft is uh, taking on atmosphere, that they're going to start being, and this is like where the worst science of the episode comes out of here. There's a little leak and instead of just sealing the leak on the shuttlecraft, so it quits letting this poisonous atmosphere and they're going to leave for whatever reason and arguably make it harder for Voyager to find them when they get down. Um, they beeline it through uh, planet hell. It's, you know, our classic Star Trek cave series that we always use for these types of shots. And they end up at a cave network where they go into the cave where there should be itchy air. They -hmm. turn around, they shoot the cave entrance with phasers for some fucking reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Boulders fall. I've, I've looked at rocks that have dropped before. It is Mm -hmm. not an airtight seal by any stretch of the imagination yet. Mm-hmm. The reason for shooting the door shut is to seal off the bad air. Yeah, let's trap ourselves in a place that, by definition, would have to only contain the thing that is bothering us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's total, ba- totally a baffling non-explanation as to why this would work. And then they get some sweet glow rocks, you know, shoot I those love, up. I love glow rocks. Anytime they shoot a phaser. Uh, they shoot a rock with a phaser and like superheat it for heat. 
I always eat that shit up with a spoon. Let me let me pose something to you here, all right? Because I'm thinking about this. What a terrible fucking situation this is. You've got Neelix, who has been openly hostile towards Paris for a long time now, right? Right. Who is really becoming a pain in the ass. You've got Paris, who Neelix believe is all about his girl. And the only thing between Paris and his girl is Neelix, right? Right. They go down on a planet where nobody knows what's going on. The ship crashes that Paris was flying and Paris makes the call. Let's get away from the Federation technology. Let's make it harder to find us. Let's go off on this uncalled for exploration for a mission that should have been aborted into a remote cave where I'm now going to seal you in. And even though, you know, Paris has shown no like, uh, uh, you know, uh, ill intent or anger or really anything he's been very reactive to neelix but he hasn't been like proactively hostile what point does it click in neelix's head like this dude's just been biding his time and he is now taking me off to a remote cave to fucking murder me and leave me in an unmarked grave so he can then return back to the shuttle and say that i ran off like i always do because i'm a stupid space cat who gets my lungs stolen and he's gonna leave me dead on this planet to go back to the ship and F my girlfriend. If Snarf Snarf had that level of self-preservation, we would be dealing with an entirely different show. But I mean, like, like in I, any other context, any other show, you got someone who's like just all it takes is a little bit of sinister music in the background here. And like, this is a horrifying situation. Paris is totally dragging him off to fucking kill him to go, you know, shoot him in the back of the head behind the barn. We watch too much HBO <laughs> or stuff like the golden age of television where everyone is shitty has leaked into our minds because you're right. Like, that's what I would think. But that's because I watched a lot of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, but I mean, like, point where like he's like, you can't these falling rocks are not going to keep the air out. All this is going to do is keep me from running away. What? What? Oh, oh. <laughs> I should have saved the RZA music for that moment. Like. All of a sudden, that realization comes into play. Starts panicking. Starts trying to get up the walls like the filthy space cat he is. Trying to go from a high place. Scratch at his face. Mm-hmm. Feels the danger. That's all right. That isn't what happens, though. They have some uh, continuation of their good dialogue. Uh, Let's and, talk about uh, uh, Paris's dad being an instructor at Starfleet. Yeah, Admiral Paris, who we will get to know quite well later on in this uh, series, believe it or not. Uh, Admiral Owen Paris, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's just kind of been mentioned in passing so far. This is a real first, like, serious background information. I think Janeway said that she respected him immensely, and that's part of the reason why she pulled the stunt with Paris was to basically, well, wasn't he, like, Janeway's mentor? Yeah, it was Janeway's mentor and a former commanding officer. So he, she was posted up to a ship that he was the captain of before he was an admiral. But anyway, so for at least one term uh paris's dad was uh instructor for a federation uh starfleet survival class and what i thought was some pretty cool dialogue because you know neelix is basically second guessing everything that uh paris is trying to have him do starting with the decision to move away from the safety of the shuttlecraft uh you know paris reveals that he got what a b minus in the class that is correct. Which, you know, Neelix kind of ribs him on a little bit. And then, you know, he mentions that his dad taught it. And what I thought was kind of the beginning of the 
healing phase of the Paris Neelix drama. Neelix is like, wow, your dad, you know, gave you a shitty grade. That kind of sucks. And I think things start falling into place a little bit that maybe Paris isn't the, the despicable piece of shit that Neelix just wants to frame him as and that, you know, there might be someone with their own issues they're working through. Yeah, I agree. The humanizing dialogue like that goes a long way, goes a long way in in any interaction you've had in your real life. When you get to know somebody a little bit, suddenly if even your hostility starts to melt away, like, you know, not to get too real, but this is what happens, you know, on the Internet, you get into fights, you know, it's just an impersonal, sometimes anonymous, you know, back and forth. So you just get vicious. But when you're in person, when it's somebody that, you know, your whole mode of interaction changes. Right. So that makes sense in context of the scenes where they don't know each other. Right. They've they've only they've been on this this ship for a few months, but it's clear they don't have a lot of intersection with their jobs. So they this is the, probably the most time they've ever spent in the same place. Despite his best efforts to, you know, get on the bridge with snacks during red alerts. Hey, he, he brings those clutch meatball hors d'oeuvres when they've got phaser fire, which it's a real refreshing add to an intrepid class vessel. Yeah. Uh, but uh, meanwhile, on Voyager, um, they're just getting shot at by some dudes. They uh, they try and talk to him and they just don't. And they take up a, a sort of, uh, yeah, like a defensive posture. And it essentially is obviously pre- trying to prevent them from doing anything with the planet. But they don't talk to him and you don't see him actually until the very, very end, which I thought was a clever. That actually was a clever subversion of the trope. Like we talked about some of the other Star Trek tropes that are like, stupid or boring or predictable that we've experienced so far in this episode. This was actually a trope breaker. We don't see the alien. They don't explain their motives. They just show up and start shooting and they're just kind of left to interpret what's going on and what they should do next. And for everybody who gives a shit out there, uh, Tuvok says that their weapons are about on par with uh, what Voyager's rock in there. So they kind of formulate a plan knowing that it would be an equal fight and that they can't just shove past these guys. Not that the limp-wristed crew would ever dream of, you know, just forcing their way through a situation that wasn't a subspace hole to phallically jam the ship through. But Tuvok does come up with, like, an idea to fight them, and I don't know if you noticed, but Kote totally, like, big dogs him (laughs) in that conversation, like, interrupts him to, like, say what his, like, grand idea was going to be right in front of him. It's just it's a little bit of that Chakotay not liking Tuvok canon. That was like the only part of Twisted that we liked. It's funny because we went through, you know, I was listening to um, some of our back episodes and I caught uh, Harry Kim can't lose. And we said that Tuvok or said that Chakotay was going to be the worst part of Twisted. That was our prediction. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would say that Chakotay was hands down the best part of that fucking episode. Like. They keep as bad as if they keep the sass angle going on uh, on Chakotay and and ramp up his cattiness, the eye rolls and little stunts like this. Uh, I think we can really turn this character around. It, it gives him personality. Yeah, <laughs> like that's what was missing in the first season. Less Indian uh, bullshit, more high school drama. Bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> A mean girl. Yes. On the surface, we finally arrive at. Really, what the episode was teased to be, 
but we, I was still unprepared for. Uh, <laughs> they detect a life form in the cave. They find the life form. Where Neelix should it, have been shitting his pants that that Paris dragged him there to kill them. Uh, right. They should now both be shitting their pants as they come up on, for all intents and purposes, the egg scene from Alien. So, seeing as this is Star Trek and not, you know, any other science fiction genre, instead of a facehugger or weird alien impregnation fly or some other, like, Cronenberg-esque body horror shit, uh, what we have that hatches from the egg... Hatches, like, Jurassic the, Park style. Like, them hunched yeah, over, like, like, like... Oh, come on, little guy, push, push. Nice John, John Hammond. John Hammond, thank you. Yeah, like, was good. You, know, you know I'm big on Jurassic Park. We're actually going to go see the new movie Monday. I'm terrified that it's going to be. I heard it's dog shit, my friend. Good luck. I've heard it too, but. Hey, you can't, can't help what you love, man. I get it. Yeah. Look what we're doing. Uh, so <laughs> uh, so uh, they got it, their faces right up in this fucking egg because, you know, what could go wrong? And what comes out is. This adorable yet 100% out of place Muppet of a baby reptile alien. It straight up looks like, did you ever see the show Dinosaurs? Dinosaurs? Yes. Not the mama. That's what I got in my fucking notes. Yes. Not the mama. 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 Not alien the mama. eggs. Not the mama. It's like if you took the baby from Dinosaurs and made it a little bit more Jurassic Park raptory. It, it looked like the mom from Dinosaurs. Yeah, I, I immediately thought of the baby. I didn't think of the mom, but yeah, look, not the not the mama. It's exactly not what... Not the mama. Yeah. You, God damn, you got you have skills uh, relating to 90s pop culture vocal inflection that I didn't know you had, Peter. Yeah. It's been a shocking, this has been a shocking hour for me. I've learned so much. I talk to myself a lot in the car and uh, sometimes I forget my wife's in there when I'm just making noises or whatever. And she's like, what would you do if someone ever recorded this? And I'm like, probably kill that person and burn that tape. So don't get any ideas. <laughs> oh, that makes me worried about my safety. Anyway, so it's difficult to describe when this thing comes out of the egg because this, this... Kind of looks like a, a sketch from the Muppet show is where this belongs now. This is like uh, you're walking along through a parking lot and everything's going okay. I mean, it's not great because you're just a dude walking through a parking lot. How excited can that be? And you're wearing flip-flops. No, you're not wearing flip-flops. You're wearing, you're wearing tennis shoes and you're not paying attention and you kick one of those concrete yellow bricks that like, you know, tell the cars where they should stop. You, you know what I'm talking about? In front oh, of parking yeah, yeah, spaces. Yeah. You kick this thing and you stumble and you, you don't know. You're like, did I just hurt my foot? Does this suck? Should I be pissed off? Because I'm standing there watching this thing. I'm like, are you shitting me? This fucking dinosaur from, di not the mama, just popped out of an egg in, in Star Trek in a fucking <laughs> Tom Paris Neelix buddy cop episode. And I honestly, I didn't know how to feel about it. I'm like, my, my logical part of me should say, this is fucking terrible get my cat's claws out and rip this thing to fucking shreds because now I'm watching Muppet Babies. I'm literally watching Muppet Babies. <laughs> but then like the emotional side of me is like, this isn't terrible. So I'm like, 
I'm in this weird shell shock and I'm watching the rest of the episode from this point forward. I'm like, I do not know if I hate this. And it was a, it was the first time it's really, <laughs> I've been muddled. I've been stunned <laughs> in a Voyager episode. I, I completely share your belief. Like it was such a, it's such an unbelievably weird prop, even though it's well-made, it's a good puppet, but it just doesn't belong in Star Trek. It's the weirdest out of place thing that I can recall seeing outside of some of the just bizarre shit they did in early TNG. It's completely out of placement. It, it, it's it like is. Paris just opened up a backpack and pulled a strap on dildo out and belted it onto his forehead and just proceeded forward like nothing's going on. I'm just watching. I'm like, am I? But like, like you said, like it, it's still the episode doesn't like fall off the rails. Yeah, it like, still stays compelling and interesting from that point forward. Like and you're said, like, you've got shoes on, so it didn't break your foot, it didn't even really stub your toe. But you're just like, should I be pissed off right now? I, I don't know. And you just keep watching, and and to its credit, like you said, it's a great puppet. I think I read it took like something like eight or nine puppeteers to animate this thing. Bravo, good looking, and they do a great job animating it. It's just, just. You know, and, and, it, and it's weird to say that it feels out of place in a, in a show where rubber-suited, rubber-faced aliens are common. It's this reverse uncanny valley where it's like what it should is. be a shitty rubber puppet is instead something very intricate. So it's like it's too good for the shit thing it should be. Yeah, like it should I mean, have been a guy with like uh, just, just their hand in a sock moving up and down. Again, I, so we just talked about it, like Jurassic Park. When uh, Jurassic World came out, they had uh, these toys. They were like hand puppets, these foam core hand puppets for like Tyrannosaurus and a raptor. And uh, you just put your hand in there and your thumb moves the jaw up and down. They're really simple, but they are terrifying. I, I'll post a picture of this thing. Like, <laughs> and because I'm a piece of shit and I got my daughter, right? <laughs> oh, no. I can't help but, you know, part of me wants to, I'm not going to use the word torment. We've, <laughs> we've introduced her to it. Like, and you just get a blanket and wrap it up. And this thing just looks like a baby, like the way that Neelix moves it around. And it's convincing. That is what they should have had was just a little hand puppet in there. And instead they got this, this Terminator quality uh, mega puppet. (laughs) So, uh, and therapist bills that your child is going to have. I'll tell you when I get it in, I'll I'll put this Raptor puppet in a Starfleet uniform. I'll show you. It's pretty sweet. (laughs) Hell yes. So uh, they get out to jump to conclusion, Matt, instantly. This thing cracks out. It does not latch itself around anybody's face and then start choking with the tail. It does not flare, uh, you know, ornate organic ribbons at its gills and like start spitting an acid in people's face. It's just this little baby chilling out. They roll out the biological conjecture, jump to conclusion, Matt, and come to the establishment that uh, or the, the conclusion that. They cannot abandon this thing that was abandoned in a cave because the mother might not accept it back and blah, blah, blah. And and basically they saddle themselves with the responsibility of keeping after this thing until uh, a parent comes looking for it. It is definitely a little bit of jump to conclusion Z, but at the same time, they try and talk through some of the logic and Neelix is like laying down facts of the animal kingdom basically to say, you know, our scent could be on it, all this other stuff. The, the end result being that both Tom and Snarf Snarf begin to bond more over taking care of this thing. 
you know, they get it warm. They, they start to understand that it's going to need food. And that's when the big revelation as to what the purpose of the planet is. That is to say that it's this shit in the, in the, in the atmosphere that's making them scratch. That is essentially food for this baby alien. And they resolve that they need to get it outside and feed it so that it won't die. In the meantime, Voyager itself is a, is a, essentially in a run and gun with this alien vessel to get close enough to beam them out because they're going to have like a few minutes to be able to do it before, uh, you know, Snarf Snarf and Tom are condemned to die of terrible rashes uh, because they can't get to him. In my head, I'm, I'm looking over the scene again. The fact that both uh, Paris and Neelix seem to be closeted biologists who have an inordinate amount of reptilian knowledge at them. I, <laughs> I, I just had the scene play out where like, because they're kind of one up in each other, like, well, you know, here's my argument and here's some anecdotal evidence and, and going back and forth and just get to the point where like what other goofy skills can they drag into this conversation, try and win thing. And, and I think this would have been a great opportunity for Paris to throw in some completely non-applicable uh, ancient earth automobile knowledge. <laughs> his hit his knowledge some, of some 67 Chevys or something. Yeah. yeah. Hit him with some truck facts. Uh, the shuttlecraft was a stupid idea and like, they should have just done it every other situation. If it's worth sending a shuttlecraft in, just take the goddamn ship. Save yourself the fucking hassle. Get the ship in there. Tuvok's plan about goading the aliens into firing because it's going to fuck up their back shield so we can tag them and take out their weapon systems works. They swoop in, start scanning. At this point, uh, Neelix and Paris have gotten out of uh, the death cave. Yeah, they got out and they, and they, they have the baby and ultimately they they brainstorm a solution to saving it by essentially gathering up the atmosphere into a hypospray and spraying it into its mouth so that it feeds and it works and uh the the little puppet you know begins to move again and all eight of the people they employed for this episode get earn their well uh their the deserved paychecks its eyes flutter and, back awake it looks at you know Paris and Neelix yells not the mama and bashes one of them over there with a frying pan classic 90s and uh you get a good rap scene between neelix and and paris where they kind of talk out their situation very real talky you know they they drop it and say neelix says you got a rep people think you're this and tom's like listen uh i used to be that guy i'm not going to be that guy anymore Nothing ever happened with Kess. Nothing ever will happen with Kess. But you were right to be concerned. I think she's hot. And I totally would be trying to bang her if you weren't here. But I respect you and that's that. Ain't nothing ever going to happen. The interesting part to this scene is it begins with Neelix saying, I apologize. This has all been on me. And I've been the dick here. He didn't really start that with the expectation that... Uh, Paris was going to meet him in the middle place and, you know, culp up, you know, confess up to some culpability in this as well. And you can see the hesitation in Paris when he's like, I don't know if I should say this next part, but he kind of lays all the cards on the table and exposes himself to, you know, basically rekindling the anger and the animosity. But in the end, the, the gamble pays off and they finally bury this fucking hatchet, which is good. About that time, 
uh, they start picking up readings that there's a life form coming and they, you know, assess it to be whatever this thing species is. And what I thought was the, you know, really impressive move. You said, you know, breaking the trope, not seeing the alien before the end big reveal. This alien mass they bring out, it's a legit looking alien. Like as good as this puppet is done up like this lizard man who comes around the corner. I wouldn't say it's as scary as like Predator, but it is an ugly motherfucker. I was very impressed by how monstrous this thing looked. I, you know, we're used to some pretty humanoid, acceptable looking aliens on this show. Mm -hmm. It is not often that you get a, a bipedal intelligent race that looks super fucked up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's got that, uh, the alien face where it's got like the fangs within the fangs. It's, this thing it's nasty and you only get to see it for maybe 15 seconds before you know last minute uh, well actually they <sighs> voyager establishes communication and neelix begs janeway to leave him there because again they're you know we got to see if the baby's going to be accepted and whatever uh but yeah they use this mask very sparingly and i'm going to go ahead and assume that we never see this alien race again so basically this mask was created for a one-time use of all of 15 seconds and uh and it's impactful i mean it's it's a pretty potent looking mask it works out well and i like it you know i it was the right amount of use of it i liked that it was sparse i like that you just got one shot and you're like (laughs) these guys are fucked up and then you know it obviously cares for its young and they're like all right time for us to go (laughs) like get us the fuck out of here i don't want to fucking talk to this thing this thing is nasty there's certain certain first contacts that are not worth it this is one of them let's go i did want to say too when paris is uh having his hatchet bearing session he does specifically mention that uh second chances are rare and that he wanted to make the most out of this okay it's it's like they saw non sequitur and they're like let's redo this whole thing like all the takeaway points out of non sequitur are in this episode and 500 percent better than it with what appears to be minimal effort so yeah, it's it's you're absolutely right about that. This had all the emotional beats that I think that episode wanted to have. It had it with some of the same actors and pulled it off nicely. And I, I everything about Tom Paris in this episode, I really dug like you, you get to know where he's coming from and what his what the score is with him. And you get to know him more than just kind of a sex fiend. Mm-hmm. That there's a, there's a man there, and he's very cognizant of the fact that he's got a rep, but he's embracing this second chance at life. And I'll tell you and, what else. Uh, I found that alien Muppet baby to be more convincing and realistic than Harry Kim's acquisition of that property in the Mission District. <laughs> if you put both of those things on the table and you said, tell me which one of these is bullshit. Harry Kim living in the Mission. Yeah, absolutely. That dinosaur is a real thing that is out there living right now, and it is 20-some years old. Um, so, yeah, fancy uh, use of mass for the one-shot. Something of note. So uh, the Starf, the 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 shuttlecraft, they just leave behind, man. There's no mention of that fucking thing. Yeah, I mean, Voyager gets pretty notorious for the fact of, like, how many fucking shuttlecraft do they have? More to the point, though, again, as we discussed, the shuttlecraft is the most consolidation concentration of Federation technology out there. Warp drive, weapon systems, replicators, transporters. If the Federation's got it and you want it, it is present on that shuttlecraft. And uh, they just leave these things out there for 
God knows who to scavenge and uh, reverse engineer the tech or whatever. And, you know, with all the attention on Kmart Klingons fusing themselves into bulkheads, it's pretty big uh, loose thread to leave hanging out there. I agree. Uh, that's the kind of detail they always manage to not address. Yeah. So I kind of assumed they wouldn't, to be honest. It would, I didn't even have it as a thought in my mind. I mean, you're right. You're, you're completely right. But at the same time, I'm comfortable with those details being missed. I just, I'm just used to it by now. I'm numb to it, I guess is the way I should say. Par for the course. But overall, uh, the fact that this episode was like a C plus to a B minus. Pretty impressive. Was, was damned impressive based on the fact that it was using the bottom scraps of the available uh, plot threads on this show. Like of all the things that they gave Frakes to do, they gave him the shittiest possible shit to work with. And he said, here, uh, let me show you my mostly acceptable 44 minutes of television. I don't get it, man. Like they're, they're handing out the TNG alumni directors, uh, LeVar Burton and, and Frakes like, what was Frakes other one? It was, uh, it's projections. It was the a plus best episode. We've yeah, seen. Now that was a great script, but, uh, LeVar had what? 37s. No, LeVar had the uh, ex post facto. He had the uh, noir story right, that right, just right. did not I, work. I don't know. I mean, yeah. like, I'd be pissed if I was these guys. Like, come on, man. I'm, I'm here. You know, we're Star Trek family. You guys are just giving you a fucking, like, what did Frake say when he walked in? Like, okay, here's a script. And he's like, love triangle, a fucking Muppet baby. Did he just, like, look up? Dude, was he sitting at the table with whoever's trying to pitch him on taking this thing and just fucking Chakotay lunch punch him Dobie style? <laughs> Before, like, <laughs> Fuck you. Punch. I know you're trying to get me to renege on this contract so you can bust me with the breach of contract and not pay me. Fuck you. I'm not doing it. I'll take the job and I'm going to make this shit sandwich. Uh, uh, I'm going to make it good just to spite you guys. I'm going to show you that your worst. I can I can turn into some of the best. I will say that uh, it, it goes to show the power of direction because we've seen all three of the actors that are featured on this episode be completely shitty mm. in different times and freaks made all three of them shine without help without like guest actors just between the you know between them all it it shows how much a director can bring to the show uh and and improve the play of everyone around them you know so good good job uh i'm sad to say there's only one more freaks episode left for us to enjoy uh he had three episodes in season two all which started with the letter p fun fact mm -hmm. and then that's it he he flies off into the sexy sunset that only first yeah. officer gods can go yeah. you know like i said maybe uh maybe they're pissed off he was making the episodes too good and they just even after trying to set him up for failure and they couldn't they're like all right we'll just he wins get him out of here so what do we got next peter what's next Next, season two, episode eight, Persistence of Vision. And our uh, screen card on this is uh, Janeway cupping her hands over her mouth like she just watched someone back over a kitten in the driveway. Uh, the Voyager crew enters a new region of space and begins to see hallucinations. The captain sees her hollow novel characters come to life. <laughs> Oh, no. 
So here's what I'm reading is a uh, space madness meets Janeway's stepmother fantasy. <laughs> that sounds like what it is, man. I don't remember this at all. Fuck. Man, the heat just keep on coming, man. After I thought that first season, I was like, all right, we got through that. That wasn't so bad. Fucking season two, dude. How do we feel about Space Madness episodes? I like them, generally speaking, uh, when they're done well. But I guess I like anything when it's done well. Yeah. I think in general, I don't like Space Madness episodes. I think they have the potential to be very lazy, cost-saving episodes because the the plot now becomes the crew reacting to shit on sets that they've already, you know, established. And I don't know. I got, I got bad feelings about this one. Who was going to be the worst uh, character in this upcoming episode? Well, who do we say is going to be the worst character for this episode? It had to be Neelix, right? Uh, I think because we knew it was going to be Neelix and Tom, we, we both picked Neelix, which honestly, no, not true. I'd say, uh, I'd say there was nobody that was particularly bad in that episode at all. I'd say, yeah, there were, nobody was visibly bad. I, I'll give you that, sure. Uh, but for this next one, uh, Janeway's the obvious choice. Who'd be your second, though? For the worst character in this episode, I'm going to say it's going to be Chakotay. I think he's going to bust out some Indian shaman, uh, Ooh, yeah. uh, some incorrect portrayal of culture, and that there's going to be some... Not him rolling his eyes, but him doing shit to make me roll my eyes. I'm going to go with the doctor. It's going to be the worst part of the episode. That's a bold statement, sir. He has yet to deliver. Yeah, he's yet to not deliver, but I need to go with a bold choice here. And, you know, it's a space madness episode. So if a strong possibility will be involved. So let's see. Maybe this will be the one where he lets us down. I'm not hoping for it. I'm just... I've seen the rhythm of the show and he's due for a stumble. Yeah. You know, you know, I'm going to flip the script on this one. I'm going to say I'm excited for this episode. We've talked about Starfleet insane coping mechanisms and expectations for people to return to duty despite the most horrific of events. I think this will be a good opportunity for us to further theorize into the misery that is life in Starfleet that they uh, somehow make everybody forget and and convince other people to come put the uniform on and share that torture with them. All right. I like it. I like that thought. Let's go in with positive thinking. I like that. All right. Uh, Rule of acquisition. I wasn't going to give this episode a rule of acquisition. I'm starting to run thin on these things, but having uh, fleshed the episode out and the, the act of Neelix, you know, putting his foot down saying they're not going to leave space Muppet, alone space muppet baby alone forcing Mm -hmm. um uh paris into this weird my two dads situation three men and a baby situation and the eventual payoff that they bond over the experience and finally get rid of this goddamn cast jealousy thread uh i give you the rule of acquisition number nine opportunity plus instinct equals profit i like it i like it Good application, sir. And on that note, we thank all of you for listening to VG. Please, a hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. Uh, one last note, uh, depending on when this goes out, we potentially apologize in, in advance of some awkward timing or missed week. Oh, totally on me. Uh, real life stuff uh, in terms of my job. Very demanding, uh, very specific time of the year, which I'm in. 
Peter, thanks for your flexibility. Hopefully this goes out on time. If not, I'll leave this in as a apology. And and over the summer, uh, we'll uh, we'll straighten out our production schedule, and I don't think we'll have any more problems. So uh, until then, be be peaceful in your journey through the Delta Quadrant. Nice, uh, nice, positive thinking. Very good. I'm trying. <laughs>